and welcome to The Bitten Word. I'm Ashley. And I'm Christine. And today we wanted to say thank you, first and foremost, because last week we surpassed 1,000 listens. Woohoo! Yeah. <laughs> um, that happened, I think, faster than we were expecting because we've only been off the ground for about four months and we took a six-week break. But thank you so much for listening. Uh, we really appreciate it because if you weren't listening, there would be no reason for us to do this. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, keep listening and tell your friends if you're enjoying the show because um, we really enjoy doing it. We'd like to keep doing it. Today, we have some really interesting conversation for you. Uh, we are going to be talking about the Pasta Putinaska from the Bad Beginning, which is the first book in A Series of Unfortunate Events by Lemony Snicket. I'm intrigued to hear what you're going to say, because you said a couple of things that made me think that you've got like a lot of really interesting topics. So for anybody who has not read A Series of Unfortunate Events or watched the Netflix series, which is real good. It's perfect. Um, yeah. But if you haven't, and you're not familiar with this series, I'll give you just a quick rundown. So there are three children, the Baudelaire's. They are Violet, Klaus, and Sunny. And they start out the book on a field trip, they call it. They're at Briny Beach. They're doing the things that they like to do. Violet is an inventor. Um, Klaus is a reader. And Sunny is a biter. She's a baby. And they're all just happily, you know, playing. And then a man that they know named Mr. Poe comes to them and tells them that their mansion house has burned down and their parents are dead and that they are now orphans. This happens all within the first like five pages of the book. Um, and so their lives are changed immediately. They are adopted by a man called Count Olaf. He is an out-of-work actor um, who we find out is just kind of a despicable human being and that he's after the Baudelaire's fortune. Um, and so every book in this series, they move to a different place, either with a different guardian or with, or they run away and they find themselves somewhere else. And Count Olaf always shows up he always has some plan to get their money away from them. And eventually it gets foiled and they have to go to a new place. But they're all a little bit dark and dreary and kind of scary. Uh, the, the children never really have anything good happen to them over the course of this series. Uh, spoiler alert, their parents are actually dead. Like they... <laughs> They don't come back magically. I mean, the end is good in its own sense. Like they are kind of freed from the tyranny of Count Olaf. They're able to kind of move on with their lives, but it's not the same, you know? Can we also just appreciate for a second how he wrote 13 of them? <laughs> I know, right? And each one of them has 13 chapters. Well, they do, I didn't notice that. Yeah. So as far as the bad beginning specifically goes, they find out that they're orphans, they're placed with Count Olaf, um, and then he gives them like 
chores to do. He's mean to them. Um, he even hits Klaus at one point. They only and, have one bed. Yeah. They only have one bed to share between the three of them. They don't even have a closet. They're using like a cardboard box where they just, everything piles in. Um, he doesn't, he's not even home. He just leaves them a note every day saying, do these chores or else. Uh, and they go to complain about it to Mr. Poe. And he, he is the most maddening character he of really all is. of them. He's, it's awful. And the, the show, he's so perfectly cast mm -hmm. and he's so like, he's, it, it's, it's terrible. He's so maddening because the Baudelaire's are constantly going to him for help. They're trying to tell him what's going on and he's just like, eh, 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 whatever. And just totally ignores them until something really horrible happens, you know? And then he's like, yeah. oh, maybe I should do something about this. Um, and I'm sure that that is some sort of commentary about how parents and adults don't listen to kids. And I bet kids love that about this book. <laughs> they're like, see, the kids were right, you know? Um, so during this book, they figure out that Count Olaf has this scheme. He has asked them to be in a play with him called The Marvelous Marriage. And he wants Violet to play the girl who's getting married to him in the play. They also find out that their next door neighbor who is super nice and they really wish they could live with her instead. Her name is Justice Strauss. Um, they find out that she is going to be the person in the play performing the marriage. She's a real judge. Justice is her judge. type. Yes. And so Klaus does some digging in a library in a book called Nuptial Law. And he finds out that what Count Olaf wants to do is without them knowing, actually legally marry Violet on stage, which he can do because he is their guardian. And so he's giving permission for her to get married underage and then to be able to have access to their fortune. And then he's going to dispose of them. And so they figure out that that's his plan and they're going to tell somebody, but as Christine pointed out, they do the stupid thing and say, we know what you're up to. And then he can do something about it. Right. Instead of just me so going crazy. To the authorities that happens all the time in movies and stuff. As soon as that happens, I'm like, you're dead. Like, <sighs> why do you do this? Why don't you just go straight to the police? That is one thing that you learn <laughs> from watching TV. One you always go to the police without telling people your plans. And two, if you accidentally kill somebody, do not hide the body. Oh my gosh, just call just the police. Kill somebody. <laughs> um, anyway, now that you have that, you know, uh, information in your life. So they tell him and he takes Sunny, their baby sister, and he puts her in a cage uh, way at the top of the tower of his house and says, essentially, if you don't do this, I'm going to drop her. So they feel forced into it, but they find a little workaround that says that it has to be that they sign a document in the bride's own hands. They figure that Violet's right-handed. So if she signs it with her left hand, then it's not really in her own hand and it doesn't count. I think so, that's totally bogus. No, it totally <laughs> is. It totally is. But for the purposes of this, I guess it worked out for them. So 
they do it, they go through with the play. Um, you know, Violet signs it with her left hand without Count Olaf realizing what's going on. And eventually, um, at the end of the play, wherein Mr. Poe is in attendance at this play, you know, a lot of people are, but Count Olaf basically like lets the cat out of the bag at the end while everybody's there and he's like, We're married. Ha ha ha. He's, he's just you as know? dumb as the Baudelaire's. <laughs> But then they come out and they're like, no, it wasn't my actual hand. It was my left hand, not my right hand. And then they're like, Justice Strauss is like, oh, that's right. You know, that yeah. has to be with her other hand. And so then at that point, Mr. Poe's like, what? What a terrible person. I can't believe that you've been, you know, plotting this this whole time. And the Baudelaire's are like, well, duh, we've yeah. been trying to tell you, you know. And then they're moved to a different guardian at the end of the book. Okay, so the first thing that I wanted to talk about is just how weird it is that these books got popular. Like, <laughs> truthfully, I because they are intended for mostly little kids, like junior grade fiction, mm -hmm. right? Not even YA fiction, really. But they've sold 65 million copies in 41 languages. Um, and to me, these books are not like kids' books, you know? Yeah. They, they really explore a lot of adult themes. Um, and the style of it is so interesting. So, well, Daniel Handler's writing to me is very reminiscent of like A.A. Milne and P.G. Wodehouse and some of those like kind of like dry like British authors some you know who write some like children's fiction but is like funny to read as an adult because of like how silly yeah. the writing is that's true yeah I can see that now that you say it but but thinking about A.A. Milne and P.G. Wodehouse particularly those are more specifically they're lighthearted. yes you know? that's true yeah and this is not um not really in the least so it's it's interesting because you have this very dark thematic content alongside this writing style that is a little bit lighter in tone so in looking at things the you know people who know what they're talking about um look at this and they say that it has a lot of qualities of different kinds of writing styles One um, but more than anything, it fits in with Gothic literature, which is really interesting to me, considering that it's a children's book. Okay, so for people who um, may not be familiar with Gothic literature, this is a subgenre of romantic literature. And when I say romantic, I don't mean romance like, you know, bare-chested men who have eight packs and a woman who is scantily clad and they're flying across you know on a I don't know a vine or something <laughs> with like paradise in the background you know, kind of a thing that was my favorite description of a romance novel cover <laughs> well that's what they all look like to me um but so it's not that um the romantic period was a time period in art um this is like Beethoven. Like when you think of Beethoven's music, that is romanticism. Mm -hmm. um, 
it's it's when kind of like emotions started playing a bigger role in music and in art. They started kind of exploring instead of having everything be kind of classical and very structured and very um, predictable kind of, I guess. Uh, it was, <laughs> that makes me think of, <laughs> It was John Mulaney quotes as composers. Oh, and yeah. one of them was Mozart. And it was, Just because you're accurate doesn't make you interesting. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, so Beethoven is, is kind of like the poster boy, I guess, for the, the changing of the art style. And so literature kind of started doing that too. And it started exploring more emotional themes and things like that. So the Gothic subgenre was a kind of a darker version of this. Um, it, it had a lot of supernatural elements. It had usually a lot of architectural elements as well. Like there's a big manor house that is the central point for this activity. There's a terrible secret. Um, there's, it's housing a frightening person. So like, for example, Jane Eyre has both of those things. Yeah, right? I was gonna say. And um, yeah, the ones that I was thinking of were Jane Eyre, Wuthering Heights and yeah. Frankenstein. And Frankenstein, yes, those are, those are some of the more famous examples. Also, Edgar Allan Poe mm -hmm. uh, follows into this category. Yeah. Uh, well, so while this is not completely like the same thing, think about the kinds of books goth people would read, <laughs> classic books. And <laughs> yeah. those are really, that's really the gothic literature. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it's so interesting though, because the reason why they, the first time the word gothic was used to describe this literature was during, it was in a short story. I can't remember the title of it, but it had like a subtitle that was a gothic tale or a gothic story or something like that and the author actually used it as kind of like a tongue-in-cheek thing saying this is like a barbaric story because the Goths, Goths, yeah. exactly um was a term that was used for like old germanic um culture mm -hmm. and but then it kind of took off and it uses actually gothic architecture um, a lot of times in the stories and architecture is important in the stories. And it's kind of reminiscent of that. If you think of Gothic cathedrals, um, it, it feels kind of like that. It has that same tone to it. Yeah. Well, and I think when like you talk about Gothic, like arts in general, like if you've ever seen the painting Yes. So one of the things that I was looking at, the way they described it, I felt like was really good. It said that there's generally an air of exoticism, mystery, mm -hmm. fear, and dread. Yeah. Those are the overarching things that need to be happening. I'm thinking kind of also like Rebecca. Yeah. Um, I don't think Rebecca was written it during that time period, but it evokes mm -hmm. that same kind of thing. There's a manor house, there's a big secret, there's this fear and dread that's overlaying everything, you know? Um, it also is like, Poe was kind of the first one to really take off and get successful mm -hmm. with, with this. I mean, how successful is anybody really in their lifetime at that point in time? But um, talking about like psychological trauma, the evils of man, um, and the ethical ambiguity kind of thing comes in, right? It also says that there's travel and sometimes romance. And I feel like all of these things are shown 
within the scope of this series. So you have the manor house, right? It gets burned down at the very beginning of the story. Well, and I'm thinking now, I think through most of the books, there is always some sort of central manor house or something similar to it. So yep. You've got the Baudelaire's the home, Cal Olaf's home. Yeah, the factory, um, the Ersatz, or the Austria Academy, you know, the, you've got the Uncle Monty's house. Yeah. yeah. So there's always a central place here. So I feel like that totally counts. Mm-hmm. So something I saw that was interesting is that somebody said that they described it like a suburban Gothic. Mm, so like, yeah. think like Edward Scissorhands. The um, yeah, the <laughs> verbs, exactly. Um, so it's, it's something like, it, it's kind of playing off of the mundanity, I guess, of living in Mm -hmm. the suburbs, but how terrifying that can be. (laughs) Edward Scissorhands is actually a really good, uh, a really good comparison, I think. Yeah, I, I, I agree completely. Something else that's cited in these novels, as I think something that like teachers and parents really like about these novels is that the, they're very vocabulary building. The way yeah. that he writes it, uh, he'll he'll often take words that kids may not understand and say a word which here means, and then sometimes he'll just give like a basic definition of it. Sometimes he'll give a definition that's very pertinent to the situation they're in. Or sometimes it'll be like, I know I'm not going to use the right word here because I've forgotten what it was, but it'll be like despicable, a word which here means Count Olaf, you know, yeah. <laughs> like. He'll just give kind of a silly-ish definition. Or there was one actually in the first book that did like an opposite thing. So the children are talking to Count Olaf and he is giving them an insincere smile, trying to Mm. make them think he's happy. And it says, Count Olaf faked a word which here means feigned happiness. Yes. <laughs> you know, that was kind of like I a did it in reverse. Thing. Yeah. It is. It's very vocabulary building and it's kind of a fun uh, way to do that, you know? All right. Now I'm going to give you some advice before we get into this next section. If you have not listened to our bonus episode about background knowledge, we're mm-hmm. going to stop right here and give you an intermission. So that you can go listen, okay? It's going to be more of a time travel. Okay, so pause it. We'll wait. Give you. Oh yeah, and and for back for background knowledge's sake, if you don't know where that intermission music came from, right? I'm on you. Okay, intermission over. Okay, so this book is full of illusions. Um, this book and this entire series, if, if you don't have any background knowledge at all of any of these things, you'll still be able to enjoy the books um, because they're not like, you don't have to know what they are. But like we talked about in that bonus episode, it makes the experience so much richer and more full. It does. And as I was looking at this, I found so many that I didn't even know were a thing. Now, there are some really obvious ones. Um, 
like you've heard us talking about Mr. Poe, right? Mm -hmm. He is very obviously an allusion to Edgar Allan Poe, especially since he has two sons named Edgar and not Alan. I wonder why he didn't do that, but Albert. I wonder if he, if he was like, no, that would be too obvious after he's already (laughs) done Edgar and Poe. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I think his name is Albert. Yeah, it is. And they're all named after people. So it's, it's thought that the Baudelaire's was like the name Baudelaire was taken from Charles Baudelaire, um, who was a poet. Um, and he also did a lot of commentary like on Poe's work. Hmm. Um, also later in the series, you have triplets, but you only ever meet two of them named Isadora and Duncan, or do you end up meeting the third one? You do eventually. Yeah, Isadora and Duncan. I'm, I can't place it, but I know it. Okay, Isadora Duncan is a was a ballerina, okay. a very famous ballerina. And interestingly, I I did know that, but I didn't know that she died a really strange death. So she was riding in an open car. And her scarf that she was wearing got tangled in one of the wheels and it strangled her as they went along. Yeah. So almost all of the illusions in here are kind of like that. They're very dark or mysterious kind of things. For example, um, Klaus and Sonny were named after a couple, Klaus and Sonny von Bülow, and he killed her. Um, And there was like a whole murder trial and stuff. Yeah. Um, So some of these are also literary. Like what was the one you found the other day? Um, This is in the second book in the reptile room. Um, Sunny doesn't speak normal words because she's a baby. Um, So often she'll say something random and then Lemony Snicket will translate for her. And in the reptile room, there's a part where she says, Ackroyd. And he says, which probably meant something like Roger, but Rod, the murder of Roger Ackroyd is a book, is a book by Agatha Christie. Yeah. Um, also in one of the later books, the Erzatz Elevator, um, you have Jerome and Esme Squalor are the people who take them in and J.D. Salinger, the J stands for Jerome. And he had a short story called For Esme with Love and Squalor. And Mm. that's where he got their names from. Um, In The End, which is the last book in the series, they travel to an island. Like, they think it's a deserted island, but they find that there are actually people living on the island. And all of the people on the island have names from The Tempest, Robinson Crusoe, Moby Dick, other island and, like, nautical-related things, um, which is just fascinating to me that he took so much time uh to like to do this and also he must have a lot of background knowledge to Mm -hmm. know where to find these things you know yeah so okay here here is my favorite so lemony snicket has a love who is dead her name is Beatrice and he dedicates every book to her and he talks about her and how much he misses her and he wishes she was there, but she's dead, um, you know, constantly. And so that in itself is like an illusion upon an illusion. So 
I'm going to read this paragraph that I wrote down. I don't remember exactly from where, maybe Wikipedia, but I don't think so. I think it was something else. So the name Beatrice may be an allusion to the poem La Beatrice by Charles Baudelaire. The poem references an actor without a job, which would be Olaf, right? It also begins with the line, in a burnt ash gray land without vegetation. So maybe an allusion to the Baudelaire mansion getting burned down, right? Um, but also Beatrice could be an allusion to Dante because his works were all dedicated to Beatrice with whom he was obsessed and who was also dead. Interesting. Right? That, that is my favorite one by far because that is just like, what? That's like 20 illusions in one thing. (laughs) Yeah, that is a good one. All right. So now let's talk about the scene that we're talking about today. So in this scene, Count Olaf, as we said, has been giving them lists of chores to do while he's gone. And one day he leaves them a note that says, here's a little bit of money. You need to cook dinner for my entire theater troupe of like 10 people and be ready when we get back. And they're like, uh, we don't know how to cook. And he doesn't care, you know, of course. So they decide to go next door to Justice Strauss and her big and cozy library and to find something to cook, okay? He gives them no instructions. He just says, cook dinner, right? So they're in the library and they're kind of like happy for once because they've been miserable at Count Olaf's, but they're happy in the library. They're looking around and it says... But finally, Klaus found a dish that sounded delicious and easy to make. Listen to this, he said, puttanesca. It's an Italian sauce for pasta. All we need to do is saute olives, capers, anchovies, garlic, chopped parsley, and tomatoes together in a pot and prepare spaghetti to go with it. That sounds easy, Violet agreed. And the Baudelaire orphans looked at one another. Perhaps with the kind Justice Strauss and her library right next door, the children could prepare pleasant lives for themselves as easily as making puttanesca sauce for Count Olaf. What okay, so kind of a kid is Klaus that he saw a dish that had olives, capers, and anchovies? I know, right? and was like, this sounds delicious. <laughs> That's actually true. <laughs> um, I don't know. Maybe they had a lot of different cuisines at the house. <laughs> so the next chapter, that's the very end of the third chapter. The next chapter starts out and Justice Strauss takes them to the market. They have a really good time picking out ingredients. Um, They're excited to make this meal because they think that maybe if they do a good job, Count Olaf's going to be nicer to them. And so they're, they're kind of excited about this. Then they go to the kitchen and they're cooking and it's like, they're super happy. They describe it as Uh, The kitchen grew cozy as the sauce simmered, a culinary term, which means cooked over low heat. Just as they're done, Count Olaf walks in the door. Orphans, Count Olaf called out in his scratchy voice. Where are you, orphans? In the kitchen, Count Olaf, Klaus called. We're just finishing dinner. You'd better be, Count Olaf said and strode into the kitchen. He gazed at all three Baudelaire children with his shiny, shiny eyes. 
My troop is right behind me and they're very hungry. Where is the roast beef? We didn't make roast beef, Violet said. We made Putinesca sauce. Okay, and then Count Olaf goes on a rampage. He's so angry that they didn't make roast beef. He can't believe that they didn't make roast beef. And he threatens Sunny. He picks her up by like her, oh, one hand, I guess. He raises her, so staring at him in the eye. So she's really scared. Um, and he's so angry and he tells them to serve it anyway, right? And it's really interesting too here because they were so cozy, they were talking about their parents, they're happy, and then this happens and then they serve it to this troop who's also just as mean as Count Olaf. Um, and it says, Violet thought of what the bald man had said about wrecking her face and nodded. The two of them looked at the pot of bubbling sauce which had seemed so cozy while they were making it and now looked like a vat of blood. Dun, dun, dun. Um, so this scene is one of the places, or I guess it is the place where we really start hating Count Olaf. Yeah. Like before he was just kind of an absent figure. He wasn't nice. He was kind of neglectful, but it wasn't the absolute worst that it could be. But now we see that he really is just like a terrible, terrible person. Mm-hmm. So in my research on Putinesca sauce, my very favorite headliner for a blog post was the sordid story of Putinesca, the prostitute pasta sauce. <laughs> That's great. Um, so it's like, well, that'll get your attention. So there are, there are, of course, as usual, you know, as we've been talking about the history of these dishes, We've seen that there are often multiple um, thoughts as to where this came from. Yeah. But by far, for Putinesca sauce, the most popular thought is that it's okay. So it translates roughly to Lady of the Night. Okay. Mm, okay. Um, and this one is this one's interesting too because it says most Italian sauces date to around the 1700s, but that Putinesca was only about 80 years ago during World War II. Um, and it has to do with like, even within this thing, there are different thought processes as to why it's called this. So one of them is that it's a very fast dish. It's put together really quickly. And so they would make it for themselves in between customers. So that's one thought process. I thought that's not where I thought that was gonna go. I thought you were gonna be like, it's a fast dish, like a fast woman. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe. Uh, that's funny. Um, okay, so another reason why they think that is that maybe they made it for their customers while they were waiting, which I feel like is really awkward, but okay. Um, can I make you some food? Um, no, that's okay. Uh, <laughs> I was just here for the other thing. I know, right? Um, another really interesting thing that I saw was that maybe it has to do with aromatics, either because this dish was made in brothels and so it would lure men to them, 
um, because they could smell it like cooking or because the powerful mix of anchovies, olives, and capers might smell similar to an Italian prostitute. <laughs> is what that <laughs> I that that was a direct quote from a blog post. That's that's funny because I really can't imagine guys walking down the street and being like, smells like hookers, you know, and then <laughs> let's go like I don't know that just doesn't sound like an enticing thing right well but maybe it was just because it was the thing like nobody else cooked it maybe you know so I don't know um okay but another another story for why this might be oh actually before I go there I guess um putana derives from the Latin word putida, which means stinking. Okay, so that's where you get like the putinesca thing in the first you know, place. So we're making this just sound less and less appetizing. No, okay. I'm I'm gonna go into something else. Okay. <laughs> I've already read you a list of ingredients uh, that Klaus so kindly gave us. It's actually really good. I actually make this on a regular basis. It's in my regular rotation putinesca? for meals. So, yeah, it is. Oh. Um, we're using a different recipe than I usually use uh, just so that we can share it because it's online. That's a new recipe, but I have made it in years past. In fact, one time I made it for like a big family gathering on my husband's side and I made it like triple the amount, like three pounds of pasta and it got eaten. In fact, the bowl got licked clean. That's how good this is. It's super, super good. So please do not let all of these descriptions throw you off because it's actually really tasty. Stinky sauce. But anyway, here's, here's a different version of events for you. Um, some people say that it was in a restaurant when a group came in late and asked the chef to make, and I'm going to butcher this Italian people, I am very sorry, una puttanata qualsiasi, which just means to like to throw together whatever you have and make it simple, right? Just... I know it's the end of the night, you're about to lock up, just make me something. And this is what the chef came up with. One of our very <laughs> regular listeners speaks Italian. So uh, Carrie, give us a, a scale on one to five on how good the pronunciation was. <laughs> like negative two. Um, <laughs> so the reason why people think that too is because it's easy and it's made in a few minutes, which is likely why the Baudelaire's chose it, right? Because it seems quick and something that kids can make, but also because putana can be used as like crap, you know, just throw a bunch of crap in the pan and do it. It is essentially what that could mean. Um, crap in, in the same, in the same vein as the crap drawer. <laughs> the yeah, exactly. It's the junk stuff. It's the catch-all. It's the clean out the fridge meal, you know, yeah. just yeah, just throw it all in there and it'll make it. And, and so they think that possibly that could be where it came from too. And a very different connotation there. <laughs> I know. I was going to say, that. it's kind of funny, like looking at it from the perspective of like Americans, like in the modern day, because I feel like olives and capers and anchovies are not things that are just in people's pantry typically. You know? I always have capers and almost always have olives. I Not usually have capers. Days. I don't always have black olives. I will typically have Kalamata olives. Oh, okay. So something really interesting that I 
I found out about this too, is that if you're really down and out, you can add a sea rock from the beach instead of anchovies and it'll give it the same briny flavor. Like stone soup? Yeah, I guess. So if you really don't want to eat anchovies, but you live by the beach, you can just go get a rock and let it sink right in your soup. That sounds horrible. <laughs> Doesn't it though? And I feel like you'd have to wash it off first, which maybe they weren't doing at that point in well, time. It sounds like but... really minerally and like, <clears throat> like it would, I feel like it would give your soup a weird, yeah, minerally flavor. But then I feel like you also have to be careful about the kind of rock you use because if it's like too porous, I'd be afraid I'd be getting like tiny crabs and brine shrimp oh, yeah. and stuff. Totally. Like... totally. I'm sure that happened if people are doing that, but you know, if you're really down and out, you need to eat. And maybe those crabs are protein. protein. <laughs> we both went that same place. And we're back to try the pasta putinesca. So did you feel like it was as stinky as they made it out to be? No, it's got, it does have a smell to it, but it's not stinky. So I usually make this without the anchovies. Um, and well, now you when, tell me. <laughs> well, usually I do. This time I didn't. I got anchovy paste um, and that stunk when I was <clears throat> cooking it. But when the sauce was simmering, it didn't smell like anything in particular. Like it just kind of melted not really in. Not. I couldn't smell it. I don't know. What's that face? <laughs> I don't feel like, I feel like I'm only tasting olives. Yeah, I, I didn't get much anchovy flavor either. So I was like, why did I even buy this anchovy paste? Because it tastes the same without it. I mean, anchovy is going to give it that umami flavor. And so I think yeah. it's probably just there to balance out like the acidity of the tomatoes, maybe? Maybe. Because, um, I mean, you've got the olives and the capers, and those are kind of acidic as well. It's not bad. Poor Will, he hates olives, and so this, like, only tastes like olives. He hates them, <laughs> and then he came back inside, and he's like, no one told me there was poison in this. <laughs> well, I like the olive flavor. I think it's tasty. I like, I like olives, too. Um, so I enjoy it. I think it's pretty good. I, I like the recipe that I usually use, I think better than this one. No, no, it's not bad though. I, I really can't taste the anchovy. I think it probably just mellows out some of the other flavors a little bit and that's all. Yeah. Um, maybe. I mean, it's kind of like Caesar dressing, right? I mean, you don't ever taste the anchovy in Caesar dressing. No, that's true. Actually, that was something that Noah asked about. He was like, well, I won't eat the capers. Or the other thing in there it was like the anchovies. And he was like, yeah, it's like, you know what? Anchovies are a big part of Caesar dressing. And he was like, oh, really? I was like, yep. He's like, oh, okay. <laughs> and then he was totally fine with it. I've never eaten an anchovy by itself. So I really don't know what they taste like other than I think they're supposed to be salty. Yeah. But like, I just remember on those Windstar cruises, anytime you order a Caesar salad, it would come with like a couple anchovies on top. Yes. Yeah. And they always looked furry for some reason. Yes. And so and there's no way I'm putting that in my mouth. No, <laughs> I always gave cold. mine to grandpa. <laughs> yeah. You know what? I do remember grandpa making 
Caesar dressing when we would go to his house for dinner. Um, and he would use the real anchovies. Oh, really? Know? Yeah, cut them up and put them in there and stuff. Um, it kind of honestly kind of makes me wonder about anchovy pizza. Mm, no, they look fuzzy. <laughs> well, yeah, they look horrible. But I mean, you've got like to the tomato and, you know, olives and stuff. I feel like yeah. this might taste more or less like an, like an anchovy pizza. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, I mean, it it doesn't sound like the weirdest thing in the world anymore, you know, but having those whole anchovies, eh, just mm, it's just not appetizing. No, nothing about eating a whole fish. Mm-mm. Sounds good. Mm-mm. But. It's like in Christmas Story when they bring out that goose and they're like, it's smiling at me. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, that's exactly what that's like. It's I got know, a face I'm not that's that off-putting. Face. Yep, exactly. Um, so yeah, I I think this dish is very tasty to me. Um, I feel like, like I said, the recipe that I usually make, I think is better than this one, but there are a lot of recipes for this. So I would suggest going out and trying one um, with or without anchovies, depending on your preference. I would uh, say be brave and try the anchovies because you really can't taste them. Yeah, you really can't like not not by themselves. I'm I'm sure that it's mostly like a background flavor, mm-hmm. kind of just yeah. I mean the directions in these say to cook the anchovies in the oil until they start to melt into the oil. Yeah, and that's I like think, the whole fish. Did you use the whole fish? No, I used paste, mm. but I feel like mine ended up with an oil slick. So I feel like mine I used too much too. oil or something. But yeah, I mean, I don't feel like I have a lot to say about it, but it's not bad. It's better than I thought it would be. Yeah. Um, as far as noodles go, you can use any noodle you want with this. Generally, I serve it with like a spaghetti long noodle, you know, mm-hmm. but in the book, it specifically says that at the market, they bought interestingly shaped noodles. So today I branched out and got something different and they were called like Pepe Regate or something similar to that. They're like really big macaronis, except that- They're kind of like snail shells. They do look like snail shells. They're like, they're open on one side and kind of closed on the other. Mm -hmm. Um, You'll see a picture of that on Instagram. Uh, but they were kind of fun looking and it was, it was fun. Cause my daughter came in and she was like, Ooh, those are fun. And I was like, Oh, good. Cause I was trying to get interestingly shaped noodles. All I could get was mini farfalle. They didn't have like, it's really hit or miss at Walmart. Sometimes they have like really fun, like die cut stuff, but oh, yeah. they didn't really have anything good this time. So I just got that. No, well, that's okay. I'm sure it still tastes good. Oh yeah. I mean, it tastes fine. Okay. And that's it for The Bad Beginning and Pasta Putnesca. Join us next time. We're going to be going back into the realm of video games to talk about Fallout and the Blamco mac and cheese and a few different types of Nuka-Cola. So that should be fun. Also, if you would like to get the recipe that we made today for Pasta Putnesca and see pictures of what we made, join us on Instagram at the Bitten Word Podcast. You can also join us on Twitter at the Bitten Pod. And we also have an email address just in case you have a reason to talk to us, like sending us suggestions for our podcast. 
And that is thebittenwordpodcast at gmail.com. So thank you so much for joining us today. And until next time, happy reading and bon appetit. Well, I was going to say in the show, um, they while they're making it, Klaus said, I wonder what Putinesca means. And usually I feel like that's sort of a leading question where you're meant to look it up, you know, because there's yeah. something interesting or you get an extra piece of info or something. And so I looked it up and Google Translate literally just said, capers, olives, anchovies. And I was like, Google Translate, <laughs> just give me a recipe. So <laughs> that was all I got when I did my extremely minimal amount of research about it. But